This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia Sam. How's it going? It's going very well. We're off to Hamner Springs today. Nice. For a 60th birthday party, and then the plan was to spend a few days driving down the West Coast but I don't think they've recovered enough yet for us to do that, so I'm not sure what we're doing at the end of the weekend. Whatever you do, enjoy the rest. I'm sure we will. And who are we introducing today? Oh, my gosh, Sam. Um, Today, it is my absolute honour and privilege to introduce Aparana Taylor, who has been an inspiration in my life for since I was 10 years old and the first time I ever read any of his poems. Um, I put it out on my Facebook, who has a contact for him? One of my teaching friends gave me his email and he agreed to come on today. Apirana, thank you very, very much for sharing time with us today. Kia ora. Apirana, where are you? I'm in Paikakariki, 60 k's, around about 60 k's northwest of um, Wellington, up the coast. And how was, how was lockdown, how was your bubble life? Um, well, it kind of fit me in a strange way because I was in France. I was invited to go and uh, to do an artist residency in France, uh, live in a castle. We waited on head and foot in France and uh, just write and paint. And then at the end of the residency, they had organised for me to travel around France, reading my poetry and showing my work around the place. And a um, couple of days before I was due to go over, I thought, well, you know, this virus is in Italy. I better ring up the people in France and see what the story is, whether it's safe to go. And they said, oh, no, no, come over, it's in Italy. The time I got to Italy, it was in France. So instead of spending a couple of months in France, I spent about a week there in this castle trying to do as much work as I could and did quite a bit, wrote a bit of poetry, did a lot of painting and things. And then uh, Jacinda said, we're going into lockdown, everyone come back. So I jumped on the plane and flew back and that was a flight from hell, really. And uh, I'm just hoping I can get back. They want me to go back to France because I never really got a chance to to achieve what I could have. So I'm hoping one day to go back there. Yeah. So then I got back to um, flew back into Wellington because when I was staying in this castle in France, uh, the only TV they had was owned by the caretaker. He was Portuguese, so everything on the TV was Portuguese, and I don't speak Portuguese. <laughs> I had no idea what was going. I was really isolated in this castle in Pop Pops of France, and uh, it was my darling wife, who was also my manager, got hold of me and said, you've got to come back, but I didn't want to. I thought, I'm isolated here. I'm doing quite nicely here, so I wasn't keen to come back at all. And in the end, it was a wise decision to come back. Otherwise, I would have been stuck there for months and I would have become a bit of a drain on my hosts and things like that. So I came back to um, to Wellington. I arrived back in Wellington. Still not really sure what was going on. And I got out of the plane and walked across the tarmac and went up to the parking place and waited for my darling to come and pick me up. She came and picked me up with a thing wrapped around her face and I was wondering what the heck was going on. And I, I thought, oh, I haven't seen you for ages. So I went to give her a friendly kiss. And she looked at me and pulled out this 
Sprite in. <laughs> what the hell is Sprite in the place? What the heck is going on here? So then I had to jump in the back and stay of the car and stay away from it. And I'm about five minutes. I said, right, okay, I'll just tap the shoulder and give a little welcome. Because I tapped her on the shoulder and she turned around again. I thought I was a fly. I felt like I was being sprayed like a fly. And I came back to my house and my my daughter and son-in-law and my, my partner, my wife, Prue, were staying down the road in isolation. And I was staying in my house all by myself for the whole period by myself. Um, I sort of didn't mind it for quite a while. And then I began to, it began to pull on me a bit being stuck here. But... Prue dropped off a few bottles of wine for me, so he had a virtual wine every night. But after a while, I wanted to, never mind the virtual wine, you know, I wanted to talk to someone. But after that, I mean, I, I just sat down and enjoyed myself and, and then wrote some poetry, wrote, you know, there was nothing else to do, so I wrote poetry. And um, I actually, as I was following what was going with Pope, suddenly became quite, I felt quite proud of our little country and the way we were attacking this thing. It's like we all grouped together like an all-black number eight pack and decided we're going to fight this. And I was quite proud. I found myself, I might have been after a couple of virtual lines, standing in my <laughs> sitting room, looking out the window and singing the national anthem. You know, and I don't give a damn about national anthems. So they're not really big in my books. But I just felt quite proud of our little country. And uh, I hope we keep... Because, you see, the thing where no matter what culture we're from, it's something that all people in this country had to face together and fight it together. So it seems like that, that all people in together, regardless of your race, gender or whatever. It's a good thing in that regard. When you came back and you found yourself writing poetry, do you think you'll be able to recognise that in a few years' time as, oh, that's the lockdown series? Is, is there a particular form of poetry that comes out of a lockdown? Um, well, I think it will. I should have forgot what we were going to be. I've got, I should have had the poem with me. I could have read it to you. But uh, it's quite a good poem, I think. You know, Every now and then you write ones that you think, yeah, that's a keeper. So I said... Someone asked me, can't even, I'm very bad with remembering details like that. I, I write stuff, I don't bother about technical things. And, uh, so someone asked me if I had a poem about COVID, so I said it off, so it's been well received. It, uh, I mean, COVID surely must go away one day, but it's just a little record of how it affected us. I think, uh, I mean, it affected, it's affected all of us, but in particular um, with Māori, I mean, what do we do? We're sleeping on, on the marae with hundreds of people, hugging, embracing, trying to get the hoopa to flow, and uh, we can't really do it in COVID. So my poem was a bit like that, you know, about those problems that face us. Oh, 
recently submitted thesis yes there's a particular poem yes tell us about it well when i was 10 years old my dad went to the ranfurly pub um, and he bought home this book of poetry called eyes of the ruru and i'm going to be 50 in a few months time and i've been carrying this book with me it is my absolute most prized thing that I have because it came from my dad and until my dad passed and I um, and I received his ponamu it's the only thing I ever got from my dad mm. and there was one particular poem in there called sad joke on a marae that when I read it even though I was only 10 I recognized my dad in it so much and I understood something about him that it gave me this incredible insight actually I feel quite teary talking about it gave me an incredible insight into my very broken dad. And um, and it has, and actually if I had to, if I was asked to name one thing that inspired my whole entire doctorate thesis, it'll be this poem, which is why it's in, um, it's in the literature review, it's in the learning agreement, and it's in the actual thesis itself. Apirana, that, that poem, it has inspired my entire life's work as an identity activist. Oh, my, God. My entire life. It's had that effect on a lot of people, actually. But I, I, it only took me about five minutes to write it. So I wrote it, wrote it in the um, Alcohol and Drug Abuse Centre. Really? Mm. I wrote two poems. I wrote that one and I wrote, then I dashed that one off. Forgot about it, and then when I got out, there's another Māori poet called Roly Hubby. He was my mentor. He looked after me when I was a young, arrogant, drunken pain in the arse. I went to see him, and he took me up to Palmerston North to do a poetry reading with him. And I'd only written about through two or three poems at that stage of my career. So we went to Palmerston to North Gills High, I think it was, and we had an hour to read in the big assembly hall. The whole place was packed out with these young students. And my mate Rolly read for about two minutes, then handed the floor over to me, which left me with 58 minutes. <laughs> you know, I'd written about three or four poems, so I read those and wondered what to do. And that poem, sad joke on my life. Until then, I hadn't really thought much about it. I had a copy of it in longhand in, in the back of my exercise book. It fell out. And, fell onto the floor, so I thought, oh, I'll read that. So I picked it up and read it, and people went, well. So I kept it. I'm glad you did. Yeah. I usually really belt it out, because it's kind of like a pork or a haka in English. But the, what got me to belt it out was, um, at that stage of my career, I was eager to get myself out and about reading. I saw in Wellington a poster saying poetry reading at the Dallas Art Gallery. All welcome, come and read your poetry. So I thought, there you are. 
there's an opening, I'll get in there and do that. So I went out to the house, and when I got there, there were signs up saying, come in and read. So I knocked on the door, and the lady opened the door, and I said, oh, hello, I've noticed that sign, I've come in to read my poetry, and she refused to let me in. Slammed the door in my face, knocked it. I was, I was sleeping on the streets in those days, so I suppose she, I didn't look like what she thought a poet ought to look like. And it got me so angry, I kicked the door down to the house out the other and charged in there and went, T-A-M-O-Y-O-R! Melted the time out, everybody went, <laughs> And so inadvertently, that lady did me a favour. So I've been belting it out. I must have read it thousands and thousands of times, and I get requested to read it a lot. I mightn't be reading it much more in my life, I don't think, because I'm going to get the moko. Cool book on my face. I've always known that my tribe isn't nothing TV, but that was the life I was living. And the people that I was running around with, you know, back in the days of booze bands and all that, I loved it. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> I liked it. But uh, things had changed. And then, you know, for about 30 years, the poem, everybody was highly relevant. I thought, you know, in 10 years' time, history will have changed. Our attitudes will have changed. This poem will become irrelevant. And then 10 years later, I thought, no, 10 years had come and run. After 30 years had passed, people were still hooked into it. And I read it one day at a school, and then one of the students came up to me and said, Uppy, we really love that poem. We all talk Māori now because of the, <laughs> because of the changes where it was kūta kōpapa and things. Yep. So that was a little glimmer of light. And also, people don't drink DB anymore, they drink Red Bull or something like that. So those things have changed, but people still understand the spirit of the poem. And, uh, for me, it's a poem, it's got uh, everything in it. It's got loss and triumph, uh, finding and defeat, anger and pain and joy. It's got all those things in that thing. And it's a positive piece. Yeah. That is, I, um I remember going to a tangi not long after uh, my auntie Rao died and we went uh, to Otako for her tangi and I saw my dad on the marae and the, the poem and the words were in my mind and seeing him in that space and I could hear that call from inside him, that longing to belong, to connect, and but being so broken by his addictions and broken by her, the violence that he'd grown up with was just an extraordinary time of really understanding and um and I'm grateful to have had that it's so early in my life because it it changed the direction of my life really there's a lot yeah. of us with that story mm. I'm so glad it had a positive influence massively so the whole book actually I encourage everybody to try and find uh, Eyes of the Rudu somewhere, hey, <laughs> there must be some copies of it somewhere, maybe online if it's not available and physical anymore, because it, there's just so much honesty in the work. Yeah, well, there's some poems there that I was a young poet trying to try my wings out, so there's some that I'd probably like to see disappear, but it's also got some of my best stuff, because when you're young, you don't care, you don't care. <laughs> what to say or how you're going to say it you've just got a lot of energy you want to get it out there which gives you a kind of strength a different kind of strength from a, an older part you've been around you know you're at a different stage in your life and young parts are often rebellious and they ought to be <laughs> so yeah i've written a lot of poems since then what keeps you writing them well, it's just like what keeps people breathing. I have to, uh, I mean, it's just in me to do that. And uh, I think if you're an artist, and it's probably true with a lot of artists, you've got that force within you, and it's a positive force that you need to use because if you don't, it becomes a negative, destructive one. So I just keep writing 99% of the time in English, occasionally in Maori. I just keep writing because I love playing with words. Yeah, that's it. You know, you write a good poem, it's that long, you've got every word right, it sounds good, the imagery's good, you've got a piece of perfection, and you feel good. You think, oh, 
that's what keeps me writing. Is it a is it the message that's underneath it that's as important, or is it the the almost like a puzzle? Because those how you just described it there sounded a bit like it was a a puzzle, and it's you know have I solved this puzzle? But I think I think you're also hearing you saying something about the message as well. Yeah, well, I suppose every good every good poem's got a message or, or an insight that you want readers to, to you want to share with readers. But for me, it's just the joy and the love of language, you know, words and putting them together and playing with them. For me, that's like paint, and uh, I I still get the same sort of feeling of satisfaction and pleasure and fulfilment. Uh, Forty years. After I started writing poetry, when I finish a good poem, I still get that good feeling. I don't get any money, but I get a good feeling. I think I'm a firm believer that we've all got gifts and that we should use them. I don't think people are failures. You know, when before you're born, there's about eight thousand little sperms swimming up the track to get to the egg, and only one gets there, and that's you. <laughs> you know, so you had to beat eight thousand other little works to be born so I'm a firm believer that we all have abilities uh, they'll be different for every person and I think that we should use them Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui Dunedin's favourite goddess Tahu Mackenzie Kia ora koutou Nga mihi aroha nui Kia koutou ko tahua hau Hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day, who you are. A triumph of nature's art, perfect. Unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now we all know that as a species we innately possess so many wonderful qualities of nurturance and care and when we nurture, when we care for one another, when we show love, when we feel love, it's the best spectrum of emotion in the world. How lucky we are to have this opportunity to connect and to feel together, to share a unique reality to create a unique reality together such a pleasure and privilege for us all and as we know at times like this when things are changing things are uncertain things are unexpectedly uncertain things are unprecedentedly uncertain love is our dear friend Love is our companion, love is our comfort, love is our solace, love is our sanctuary. And of course, love occurs in myriad forms all around us, always. And when we consciously look for love in the actions of those around us, in the great strivings that we're all making every day, this deeper understanding of our innate capacities can arise. It's a great pleasure for me, of course, to work with the living world at my heart's home, Orokanui Eco Sanctuary, and acknowledge the love and the community that has grown from the Eco Sanctuary, but also the wonderful community of life that has been growing at the eco-sanctuary for many millions of years and continues to grow, many of which the life forms we don't see every day, they might be underground and I was enjoying listening to the author of Underland talk about how the biosphere and the crust, the ecosystem and the crust 
extends for seven miles and it has more biodiversity than any other part of our world and of course we're only just meeting that subterranean universe and as we all know for a long time in our history we enjoyed going into caves going into the subterranean universe and moving through very difficult dark and cramped and perilous passageways into these caves some of which were sea caves and once they're in the cave then we could make art and so it was this process of initiation and so again as a species I think we benefit from these journeys we benefit from going into the darkness to receive revelation and creativity and knowing that in the darkness we have the ability to make light so I really hope that for you whatever's happening around you and wherever you're at in your own journey you're able to look around you and see these small acts of love that make up every part of our world and know that, of course, our ancestors have been accomplishing these same things that we are for many billions of years. And we too will be the ancestors for those yet to be born. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Aparana Taylor. One of the things that surprised me um, to learn um, just recently is that you paint. I had no idea that you also, you know, you, you're an incredible wordsmith um, with, this, with this incredible insight into our world, but also a painter. And I wonder what stimulated your imagination to help you be this incredible man that you are? Well, I'm incredible, but I work hard. <laughs> I do work hard. Um, I can't help it. Art's my thing, and um, I just fell in love with colour. Now, I used to be able to draw a likeness of someone upside down looking at them and have a real good licence, and now I couldn't draw a bloody thing. Since when I discovered colour, drawing went out, and so, yeah, I paint like that, which uh, I admire painters who have that technical skill and, they, you know, they paint an apple that looks like an apple or something, but it's not the way I paint. I, I paint fast and there's a lot of energy involved. And I just have to, it's the same way, like that poem, Nighty TB, it took me about five or ten minutes to write, that was it. Because what happens is I thought, gee, you know, when I finally realised it was good poem, what a genius you are. You know, it took you five or ten minutes to write that. In actual fact, it took me about 25 years because yeah. it was in there forming. When it was ready to come out, I was quick enough to write it down. And uh, it hit me at the stage where I was just so totally in love with this poetry. You know, my mates were at university doing law degrees and accountancy and all that sort of stuff. And I used to say to them, so, what are you doing? You're wasting your bloody life becoming a lawyer. Why aren't you writing poetry? This is where it's at. <laughs> you know, and I just had the bug so bad you couldn't get me away from my pen. I was there sitting on it. It was just, it's a journey that I went on for 40, that I've been on for 40 or 50 years. What started it? Of all the things in the world, poetry, what started that for you? Uh, there's a lot of writers in my family. My, my father was a journalist. And he had a real gift with words, and he loved words. Uh, and he could write, but he never did the creative stuff. He looked like writing the factual things. So I wanted to be a writer like Dad. And this was a lifelong dream was to be a writer. But when I got about eight something, I forgot about it, decided I want to be an all-black. And I go into things, boots and all. So, you know, I trained like mad when I was about 18 or 19. I always push myself harder than other people usually. 
I decided I wanted to go for something, I'd go for it. But um, I was at university, I, I went to a mining boarding school called Toji College, which was very good for me. It took me a lot of good at school. And when I came out, I went to Massey University. And um, I mean, I've lived quite a good life. I got the best of the Paco world and the best of the Māori world. But when I went to Massey University, I went from a small Māori school where there were no Pākehās, suddenly to Massey University. I felt lost in that um, in that situation. And I used to go off to the... I didn't go to tutorials or anything. I don't even think I went to lectures. I went to the pub. I mean, it was hippie days. It was a good time to be a student. And spent all my time there. And then that night, I'd come back to my hostel. And for some reason, I'd grab a pen and paper and write things down. And when I looked at what I'd written down the next morning, it was just pages and pages of one word, F-U-C-K, F-U-C-K. And uh, then uh, one night I came back from the pub and I put the TV on and I saw Alistair Campbell reading his poetry. And here's where I was talking about As far as I was concerned, he's just brown like me. And when I saw him reading his poetry, and he heard him, I said, that's it. That's what I've wanted to do all my life. I found it. So I got my pen out and immediately decided I was going to write the greatest poem ever written in New Zealand. It was going to be an effort, a classic. It was going to be about 500 pages long, and everybody was going to read it for the next thousand years. And I honestly believed I was going to make millions out of it. You know, I was quite green. And so I sat down for months in my um, in my room trying to write this great epic poem. And I sat there for months and it was almost looked like I'd been snowing on the floor. I'd write one line, tear it up, throw it on the floor. And I emerged about it from my room about a month later with a poem that was about 11, 11 lines long. And then I thought, that's it, man. What am I doing at university? I'm wasting my time here and I grabbed a pack one of those little 1B or 2B notebooks and walked from uh, Palmerston North up to Terere My plan was that I was writing, I'd write poetry on my own. Because, you know, poets are supposed to do things like this. As far as I, was <laughs> I went up there sleeping in farmers' hay barns and getting chased out of them in the morning by great farmers and thinking, hmm, I'm going to put you in my poem, you. <laughs> I got to... And my plan was I was going to get to the in the way we were climb down the cliff because halfway down the cliff there's a Utakawa tree. I don't know if it's still there. And that's, as you would probably know, our spirits go down, climb out to the end of that tree and dive into the sea. So I was going to climb down the cliff and go out to the end of the tree and sit there and write poetry. But when I got there, you know, the sea was about four or five hundred feet below me. Sharp jagged rocks and go, no, I sat there and tried to write a poem. Couldn't write a bloody thing. I didn't actually get the poem that I went up there to write until about 30 years later. I wrote it, you know, I was writing residence at Canterbury University and suddenly what I wanted to write came to me 30 years later, yeah. Mahoe wai poro 
Do you still get out and about traveling yes. with poetry? Yeah, not last year because of COVID I didn't, but this year it's all picked up again and people seem to be more determined than ever to get hold of me. So my wife, Prue, is also my manager. She's the best manager I've ever had. She arranges it all, people get hold of herself. So if I go to a place like the Bay of Plenty, I'll take galleries or whatever, but I'll, I'll go to the schools and often read my poetry to about five or six hundred students at once, which means that it's not too expensive for the, for the school. We all get make out of it. I really enjoy it. I've been doing that for 30, 40 odd years now, reading to our young people. I mean, I get invited off to Europe. I've spent three or four months at a time traveling around Europe, reading my poetry several times, which is great. But what I'm most proud about is the fact that I've travelled around this country for 30 or 40 years, seen it in all its moods, its ups and its downs. And I've talked to our young people, no matter what colour or culture they are, I treat them all the same. I tell them what I've got to say. And uh, by the time I've finished with them after an hour, their idea of poetry is completely another change. Yeah. And I love doing that. We've got such beautiful young people in this country, and they like everything else. They get a bad rap. But people need to get real and go and see our young people. And if they trust you, they open up and they'll let you take you, they'll let you take them on journeys. Um, and it's wonderful. You see these wonderful, bright, positive, creative minds, and there's a lot of them out there. I don't know what happens after they leave school. You know? and people trust you then you can start doing things, good things. It must be weird seeing your work in school assessments and exams and things. Does it, if, if you, must, you must see those and think, you know, where it says, what was the poet trying to achieve here? Well, you know, well, I got that when I was at school, people trying to get me into poetry, and nothing bored me more. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to bore our young They seem to, uh, the poems that of mine that are chosen and selected, they love them. They really do. Um, I suppose it's relevant to them. Um, I have a simple message. I, use, I go for power. Uh, but also I can be very simple eloquence, power and simple eloquence. The ability to say something complex simply without being simplistic. It's a good thing because you can get your message across. So I go for that. And, you know, a few years ago, there was a teacher down in the South Island. Uh, she taught her eight, nine-year-olds uh, my poetry. Uh, one of them she taught, there was a poem about Parihaka. And uh, we never knew about Parihaka. It was never taught anywhere except maybe around the fires of Parihaka itself at night. And stories are told of the soldiers who came with guns to haul us up by the roots like trees from our land. Though the prophets called peace, peace. It was never taught at school. It was all hushed up how we listened to the prophets, to to pity, who called peace. But the only peace the soldiers knew spoke through the barrels of their guns, threatening our woman and children. It was never taught or spoken how we were shackled led away to the caves and imprisoned for ploughing our land. So here's this teacher going over this poem with these little eight, nine-year-olds. I thought, how the heck are they going to get that? She sent me uh, a folder full of their reactions to the poem and their drawings and what they wrote and thought about it. It was amazing what these little nine-year-olds, they saw it. They understood it completely, the Pākāas and the Māoris. And they talked about it with real depth. And, and they did drawings. And one little girl did a drawing to illustrate how the poem, she saw the poem. And she had a 
drawing of a little girl in their pew-pew and their tea party on, swinging a boy, standing by a sign, a road sign, which said, Putty Hucker. And she's singing a song saying, Welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's how she saw it. A little eight-year-old modern girl in her deep body and pew-pew, singing a boy's sign saying, Putty Hucker, and she's singing, I didn't <laughs> So, uh, that feels good. That, that is something that, I mean, I, I like to get paid because I've got no other way of earning a living but through my poetry. But you see, the money goes. But things like that never do. And when I finish a reading in a school or any anywhere I go and I read, and I look out and I see the people's faces, because I memorise all my poems so I can get rid of the book and make it a real happening. And so I've got 40 years of memories of people's faces gleaming and glowing out light as they do when you're working on stage and you're hitting it. People start to glow. And that stays. The money goes, but the memory of that stays. So hopefully, when I actually go, I'll have something to show the great creator and say, well, look, I wasn't just a drunk. I did this, you know. Yeah. I have some questions to end the show with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, I don't really know. I mean, because I'm always out there reading my poetry and I'm an actor and musician, so I've just sort of stumbled along, really. I think... Uh, I mean, I could. I mean, there have been times when I've read my poetry to overseas to audiences of about twenty thousand, stuff like that. Nobody in New Zealand knows about it because I never tell anybody apart from today. So you could count that as being the biggest success I've had is um, having a good family, which for struggle for me, I'm not really family person or family material at all. But I've got a wonderful partner who has been such a strength and support. And I've learned from her wonderful gifts. I'm not a people person. And I'm a bit of a selfish artist, actually. But I've learned to, from her, from the gifts that she has. She's a caring people person. So we have a quite a good team. Uh, so the biggest success I've had is having a happy I've got lovely daughters and happy son. That's the biggest success. As I said, I wasn't built to be a family man. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's the superpower Great. that got you into the mansion? I can get people to connect with the beauty within them. That's a good superpower. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Well, back in the day, you know, I was marching around about Bastion Point and all that, but basically, no, I'm an artist. Um, when it's time to march and all that, I do. And I don't consider myself an activist. I'm just uh, a seeker of the truth, really. Is your poetry activist? It just tells the truth. As I see it, I, yeah. I don't deliberately go out to be a political activist. I don't have much faith in politics or politicians. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Just, um, well, it's very hard to get me out of bed. <laughs> <these mornings. laughs> um, I'm writing a novel at the moment, and that tends to make me want to stay in bed and forget about it. But um, what uh, I've spent 40 years just living to write poetry. That's what would get me out of bed. Writing, I, I can't help but create. I lo love to create. That's what. That's what. How I feel. I've built myself. So what's the biggest I'm a challenge? Christian. That's what gets me out. The biggest uh, uh, challenge is to try and live up to uh, what the, the Bible teaches me. 
which is basically love God and love your fellow human being. I, I take that approach. <laughs> I was at church the other day and I had that feeling of great peace, the love of God, Jesus Christ and everything. I was feeling so good. I walked out of church and this woman sort of pulled in front of me in the car. You bloody <laughs> the peace was gone, so, you know, it's a thing that I, I keep striving for. But, uh, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit it. Um, I, I believe in the following of Christ, but I'm hopelessly trying to keep it. But, you know, it's not fashionable to be a follower of Christ these days, but I've never given a damn about fashion anyway. So what is the biggest challenge or opportunity you're looking forward to in the next year or two? Um, well, I'm writing my third novel and uh, kind of reached a stage where I've just kind of had enough of it. You know, so, uh, yeah. It's a real wrestling match writing a novel. It's a long-term fight, which I don't mind, but you've got to keep, at the end of each round, you've got to go back to your corner talk yourself into it, see what's going on, then go back in and have another round. So I'm up to the middle rounds, you know. I've done the three or four early rounds of sparring around, and now it's time to get into the middle rounds where I start delivering now, because middle rounds, you get them or you're not going to. So I'm up to that point, so hopefully I'll have the first draft of this next novel finished by the end of the year. The, the difficult thing is, what I've found, I've written, this will be my third novel, is that you sit down having an idea, I'll write a novel about this, and then you find that the novel is saying, no, that's not what you're writing about. This is what you're writing about. What I want to write about and what the novel is telling me, this is what you're writing to write about. It's sometimes difficult to give up your idea and listen to your own inner self, which is saying, this is what you really want to say. And you have to be able to... Uh, Take a few blows with your ego. Your ego gets tossed around. Know when to admit when you're wrong to yourself and when to stick to your guns when you're right. So, yeah, getting this novel finished, I'm busily painting as well. And I've got about 100 unpublished poems uh, sitting in my writing room that I'd like to publish those. Those kind of things. Um, I'm reaching a point where I don't really care anymore, so I'll get these poems out and then just spend my time with my mokopanas. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Nurture your skills. Use your gifts for the good. Thank you for that. Mawira. Well, I just feel so much gratitude for you and your work, for the honesty and integrity of it. And I know that I won't be alone in feeling that way, that there will be countless numbers of people who have grown up with your poetry in Aotearoa and obviously in the rest of the world too. Thank you for your contribution to community and identity. Uh, and for being so real. Thank you. Um, that's very encouraging. It's better than money. <laughs> <laughs> money feeds you. It doesn't feed my soul. You know, and it, most artists that sometimes need a bit of encouragement. Well, we all do. Thank you very much. I think if any of us could hope that someone was going to carry around their work for 40 years as their most precious possession... I don't think many of us would have would have experienced that. Yeah, you must be the only one left with that book. My one fell to pieces years ago. Oh, I'll never forget the night Dad came home from the Ranfurly pub with this book. Oh, gosh. If you know anybody up in Whakatane who wants to come up and read poetry, get in touch with my um, manager, Prue. I will. Thank you very much for joining us.
with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. We've been listening to Herini Melbourne in Moa, Teiko Perer, and this is Purera Hua. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani and in Paikakariki, Apirana Taylor. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.